Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The 20-plus years of construction in Tacoma along I-5 finally ended last year, so you know what that means. It's time to put the cones back up again. This time it's closer to Fife. Chris, what's happening? Well, this is the Gateway Project that, as I went back and looked yesterday, I've been talking about since about 2016, telling you it's coming. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Get ready. Here's what's happening. And here we are, uh, because over the next five years, the Washington Department of Transportation is going to complete a new 509 freeway from the Port of Tacoma to I-5, and then it will create a new diverging diamond interchange over I-5, just north of the new overpass at Wapato Way, and then finally complete 167 from Puyallup to I-5. There's a lot going on, and the work on that new interchange, that diverging diamond just north of 70th, began this week with the new work zone created on northbound I-5 through Fife. Lanes were shifted to the right, and the speed limit was reduced to 50 miles an hour Tuesday night. Drivers noticed that in a big way yesterday morning, uh, and if today's their first day out, they're probably noticing as well. Southbound work zone and a 50 mile an hour zone speed uh, limit there will go in on February February 25th. Washdot's Chris Olson says the lowered speed zone is only about a mile and a half long, but it's very important. We need space in the median to build a new bridges on I-5. Um, and with the curve and the limited site distances, it's much safer for our crews and the traveling public to reduce the speed for that stretch of highway. Workers need that buffer in the center of the freeway to pour the columns for the new interchange. And Olson hopes that the public understands. You're not going to lose much time in your in your travel so that's why we really encourage drivers to pay attention and slow down we want everybody our crews and travelers to get home safely at the end of the day. This lowered speed will only last for a couple of months, just to late summer, so the disruption shouldn't be too hard. I-5 drivers should be used to this lower speed idea. There was a 50-mile-an-hour zone through the Puyallup River Bridge construction zone until that project finished last year, so it's nothing new. Speed reductions have shown to increase awareness of work zones and make people more alert to where they are and what's around them. Now, while WashDOT is building a new interchange over I-5 and Fife, a lot of the work on these projects on 509 and the extension of 167 should not impact drivers. A lot of this work is also taking place off the roadway, off the freeway, you know, with the restoration program and building 167 through, you know, a large area where there's really nothing there right now. 167, as you know, stops as a freeway in Puyallup, and the project was put on hold decades ago. And so now they're just finishing the job uh, because there's so much freight traffic going back and forth with the, you know, and then taking 18 and heading up to 90 that way. Uh, so here's what's happening right now. So it's going to continue from the transition for, to five. 12 in Puyallup, where it ends right now, going all the way up to I-5, joining between Milton and Fife, just north of 70th there in Fife. And they're blazing a trail pretty much through nothing. So this is a right whole now. new freeway. This is a brand new freeway. They're all the way down. You know, to, uh, No more the, traffic lights. No, uh, not not there. No. And this is so that it'll basically you come through Sumner and Puyallup and you continue and where you normally make that sweeping left hand turn to continue on to 512 or go straight to 167, work your way to Meridian, then go down River Road, which is technically 167. Now you're just going to go keep going straight and uh, go all the way up to I-5. So the, while they're also doing this, they're going to continue uh, and watch 
widen a five and create a basically a new 509 that ends at the curve there at the Port of Tacoma and it will go straight up to I-5 as well, uh, blazing kind of a new trail there. So it's kind of going west of uh, where 99 is there now connecting with I-5. Now, while this route is desperately needed to ease the congestion through Pierce County, it's going to come with a price. The 509-167 corridor between the Port of Tacoma and Puyallup is going to be tolled. Uh-huh. Uh, not only just the section from the Port of Tacoma to I-5, but then from I-5 all the way over to Puyallup. That is going to be tolled. Now, the Gateway Project also includes the extension of 509 out of the south end of SEA Airport to I-5. You've probably seen all that construction there right by the Kent Des Moines route. I've been talking about where that bogs down. That's not all light rail traffic. You can see that there's going to be a new interchange being built built there. And so that will provide a really cool direct access from the south for Pierce County drivers going into the airport. They won't have to go all the way up to South Center, cut over and come down. But to save that time, yeah, they're going to toll that road, too. Uh, so <laughs> okay. they're basically tolling whatever they can right now to kind of pay for these well, projects. If it gets but, it built, right? Yeah. So uh, the construction should be done in about 2028. Uh, we'll start seeing the impacts, uh, you know, with them actually pouring columns a little bit later this this spring and summer. Um, but a lot of this is going to be happening off, you know, off the freeway where you won't really notice it. But it's coming. It's coming. And it'll be vitally necessary. And uh, we'll be happy to have it, even with the toll. How about this? A property tax break. And not just a property tax break, but a property tax break sponsored by Democrats. And there's a proposal for a new state holiday. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, who joins us live. Property tax exemption? Tell me about this. Yeah, how about that? Like you said, the Democrats proposing that. That's kind of novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so what this is, but you know, this could be like a Trojan horse and I'm going to explain why. So this would be a property tax exemption for residential homeowners uh, of a $250,000 beginning with taxes levied on for collection in 2025. The first $250,000 of the value of the residence, the assessed value would be exempt from property taxes. Mm-hmm. And also comes with a renter's credit beginning on January 1st, 2025. The renter's credit would be a refund, <clears throat> excuse me, of 2% of the gross rent paid in the prior calendar year at attendance principal place of residence. Now, this all sounds well and good, but here's the big, when I say it's a Trojan horse, it would require a vote of the people and change the constitutional requirement of a uniformity of taxes. Uh-huh. That basically says, Everybody has to be taxed equally. And so the representative, Democratic representative April Berg is the bill sponsor and believes that that uniformity clause clause needs some changing. And how that clause is applied and, and the limitations that that clause uh, makes on our tax system. But wouldn't that open the, clear the way for a progressive income tax if that was done? It opens the door for a lot of different taxes, opens the door for a wealth tax. It opens. So, so once you just, just can't just evenly do it, this, if you Give somebody a two hundred fifty thousand tax break. That's not uniform. So, but so if this were to pass, go through the house and the governor sign it, it would have to go to a vote of the people in November, and then you need two thirds majority. It's amending the constitution. Oh, so this is a constitutional amendment, right? Yeah, oh, because see. it has that uniformity part. So right. that's why I call it a Trojan horse. Hey, it looks sounds real good that this big two hundred fifty thousand dollar tax exemption. Yeah, but boy, you need a big change in the constitution to get it done. Right. Um, so anyway, I'm going to just, uh, well, let's see, uh, uh, well, um, I'm going to skip over those other, except for the renter's credit. I think, uh, tax reform advocate, uh, 
and Capital Gadfly, Tim Iman took issue with the 2% rent, and I thought this was interesting. It does seem a little odd that we're talking about just literally mailing checks to renters. I mean, is there a better way to, to buy votes than that? I'm not sure. <laughs> so anyway, he's still alive. Now, Keenan... Yeah. Um, Keeping with the idea of taxes, uh, there was a push to give cities and counties the permission to raise the sales tax one-tenth of one percent to hire law enforcement. Now, cities and counties have individual sales tax for different reasons. Obviously, there's been a call for increased uh, law enforcement. So there's not enough of them all going around the state. Republican Representative Drew Stokesbury is the sponsor. You know, but I acknowledge political reality that providing additional funding to cities so they can provide competitive salaries might not be a, a sufficient requirement to solve the problem, but it's a necessary requirement to solve the problem. Now, Dana Ralph is the mayor of Kent, one of those cities that Stokesbury is talking about. We still need an additional 30 to 40 officers to reach just average staffing levels. The sales tax credit bill would allow us to hire a significant number of those additional officers. And out there in Walla Walla County, the Walla Walla County Sheriff, Mike Kreider, he really has some needs that are wide and vast. In 2022, my deputies worked over 4,000 hours of overtime in order to staff three people per shift for 1,300 square miles. It's like every police department is facing this. And is it just because of money or is there something else in play here? I think it's the backlash. Well, they even talked about it, the backlash of the the whole defund police movement and the George Floyd thing. People yeah. do not want to be police officers, although at the Criminal Justice Training Center, they're they're packed. They're talking about how do we add really? more classrooms? Good. So so one, it's there's a need for officers. But there's a bottleneck now, even for the officers who want to become one, they have to go through the training center. So it's clogged up there. So the need out is outstretching the training that's available. So there's talk about adding more facilities to train officers right well, that now. That makes sense. That shouldn't be too controversial, I wouldn't think. Um, no. It's, well, it's it's how they want to spend their money. It's all about spending. This is, in the, this is basically just giving the individual cities and counties the ability to raise the sales tax. Uh, this is actually not state tax money. So, um, so we'll see how this goes. Now, you talked about the Lunar New Year. Yes. Yes. Well, there's that's a the, move. That's the proposed holiday that we're talking about here? Uh, yes, a proposed legal, and that's a big definition here, mm-hmm. legal holiday. Uh, you know, it would join basically Martin Luther King Day, President's Day, Memorial Day, Independence Day, New Year's Day. It would be right along the same lines of that, and it's the Lunar New Year holiday. And what makes it What makes them legal is a requirement that government uh, employees be paid uh, typically get paid t- days off on that. And that's why I say typically because it, the, the, the bill's written, it's really vague. And here's an important part. And let me just explain what change was made, which made it really more expensive. Now, Democrat Representative Myling Tai is the bill's sponsor. It's about making sure people felt that they belong through the most important cultural holiday that they celebrate. So when the bill was first proposed, uh, almost everybody that testified liked the idea, except for Janet Yang, because as the bill was originally written, the uh, Lunar New Year would be celebrated on the Saturday before the Lunar New Year. Mm -hmm. So if you have it on a Saturday legal holiday... And you had, and this includes that schools had to be closed on a legal holiday, and state offices are closed on a legal holiday, and people get paid on a legal holiday. And they were originally proposing it to be Saturday, mm-hmm. so that really doesn't affect state workers or the schools no. so much. But people didn't like that idea, like Janet Yang. 
Making a state of Lunar New Year holiday on a different day than the actual day of occurrence would create confusion. This is the most important festival in our culture. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, the committee voted it out of committee with with it as a floating holiday, the actual day of the new year. And just to let you know, Lunar New Year, I looked it up for the next 10 years, happens like this year, it was on January 26th. But for over the next 10 years, it jumps around between January 26th and February 19th, almost a whole day. And that, that day would be a legal holiday. And and originally, when it was uh, Saturday, there was a fiscal note that said it would cost the state basically $5 million if it was on a Saturday for the pay and whatever. Now that, now that it could be, fall on a weekday, that that makes a big difference on how much money it's going to cost the state. Wait a minute, well if, if, it fell on a, if it fell on a Saturday, would you still have to pay workers who don't normally work Saturdays? Correct. You would have to pay them time and a half and the whole bit because it's a, a legal haul. And and, but there's no obligation by private businesses to mm-hmm. pay their workers on these days. There's there's really no obligation. Uh, so so here's what's going to happen. It's going to be like all the other bills right now. They're going to the fiscal period. Well, how much is this going to cost us? So they just kick the can down the road. We don't. Know, they're going to figure out how much it's going to cost us, and then the legislator is going to go, "Oh, maybe this is too expensive to have it on a a day that bounces around between almost an entire month for the next ten years." Yeah, Matt Margovich. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. School bus drivers have a very specific job. Be on time and get those kids to school on time. But one driver in Clarence, New York, is known for more than that. I collect school buses. I have 203 school buses She's really into the job. Patricia Reitz, known as Miss Patty to the students, is an enthusiastic bus driver. I love my children. They're my family. As seen on WGRZ-TV, her school bus, Tchotchke, collection and her school bus tattoo very impressive but there's more any student that i've had that's been on miss patty's bus gets a hat and they also get a friend miss patty is one of the favorites a crocheted hat a small gesture but one that's made a big impact on students it started a few years back when she picked up the hobby of crocheting one boy gets on the bus and he goes um what are you doing I go, I'm making a hat. And um, he goes, oh, that would go great going down ski slopes at, you know, at uh, Holiday Valley. I says, well, what color would you like? That started everything. And since then, she's made so many hats. 7,083 hats. 7,083 hats. Staff at the school she serves says it leaves a lasting impression on the kids who know they have a friend in Miss Patty. It makes me feel like there are still special people in the world, special people who take that extra minute to form relationships and spread kindness. So she's she's knitting the hats on the bus? Well, I think she does it in her free time. She uses her own money, too. And the kids sometimes will bring gift cards from the parents to supplement. But she keeps going because the kids all just there's this picture of her with hundreds of kids behind her wearing all of Miss Patty's hats. It's really special. (laughs) That's a lot of hats. Yeah. Seven forty-seven, and now from the G and Ursula Show, which starts at nine here in Kyer News Radio. G Scott, mm. you're familiar with Nate Burleson, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> Co-host of the uh, CBS Morning Show. Yes, sir. And uh, I'm looking at it now, right? He's changed his hairdo, right? And it has significance. So explain it to us. Well, 
today, right now, he looks to have the the fade down on the bottom where it's l- lower, and then he has the g- hair growth on the top, and he's put them back in cornrows, and it looks like a little ponytail at the back. In black culture right now, that right now is currently in style. The style. It's the mm-hmm. style, right? That's just what's, what's happening right now. It looks good on him, too. So Nate and I specifically had a discussion about hair mm. about a year ago, right? And I told him how refreshing it is to see him get on MTV and still represent the culture. Mm-hmm. And he's like, gee, I do it on purpose. I want to represent all hairstyles. He's done the ball fade. He's done the high top fade. He's done the Kwame. He's done the Afro. So if you guys are paying attention, do me a favor. Go back and look at Nate Burleson over the last five or six years, and then you'll have an appreciation for what you're seeing right now. Yeah. He's doing it so on he's been, purpose. I didn't even notice. So he's, he's just been changing it every so often. Absolutely. I this think. one has gotten the most response and reaction, though, and positive to at least what they're posting. Yeah. Uh, he appreciates people reaching out. Hey, and he said that my crown is an extension of who I am. It's Absolutely. representation. And, and that's so powerful. I've seen a lot of female black uh, broadcasters yeah. do the same thing. I've yet to see a black male pro- uh, broadcaster do this. Yeah. So what is it, what does that do for you? And I wanted to ask you too, specifically, do you feel you can bring your whole self to what you do as a Absolutely. I do all the time here. I, I try to do that all the time. Yesterday, I went to go speak to Bellevue Utilities. Shout out to Bellevue Utilities out there in Bellevue. And I wore a suit and I wore open collar, but I made to made sure I wore my Brisbane gold chain. Just sometimes for so many years, we have been told If you want this, you need to act like this. Mm -hmm. If you want to be in this space, you need to talk like this. When you have examples of the referee cutting the dreadlocks of of a child. It was a wrestler, right? Right. When you have school policy all over the country that says you cannot wear cornrows, Mm -hmm. you cannot wear dreads, you can't wear that. Or you can't look like this. Or, G. Scott, when you talk on the radio, you need to sound like this, mm-hmm. right? When we say sound like this, what is this? Yeah. Huh? Because if you're from the South, if you're from the East Coast, if you're from Massachusetts, if you're from the West Coast, is it fair to say that we all say words differently? Yeah. yeah. So if someone from the South comes up and they have a Southern draw. And they talk with an accent in a certain way. Are they talking in a bad way? If someone from Massachusetts comes and they talk in a certain way, are they talking in a bad way? Mm -hmm. The point is, is what we need to celebrate is diversity in general. What we, how we talk, it's a beautiful thing. What you serve at your dinner table, how you guys sit down for dinner and what you do with, with your culture or in your household. Colleen, that's a. So can anybody do dreads? Could a white person do dreads? Could a white person do cornrows? Uh. <laughs> that's a great question. A great, yeah. Just asking. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a great question. I think you only now, see it on on now, white people's heads when they can, come back from I, like the Caribbean. <laughs> all right. So here's my. This is not a sweeping statement. This is how I view things. Okay. 
I do hear it. What happens when what, what's said when someone white wears cornrows or with dreads? Me personally, if you're white and you want to wear dreads and you want to wear cornrows, I think you should be able to do it. Mm. Do you? So much. If we're going to celebrate diversity, then go all the way with it. So you don't believe in the appropriation argument? No, I know the arguments there. Yeah. And I understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But sometimes someone might want to wear dreads. And so I'm going to say, hey, Colleen, you know what? That's uh, appropriation right there. I don't know. And here's the historical reasons. You know what, Colleen? You're my friend. You want to wear dreads? <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's different with us, right? We know each other. We know we have trust between each other. I would like to that. see that, Colleen. But even you if I, <laughs> I don't know if I give me a headache. But even if, but even if I didn't know this dude, Dave Ross, walking down the street, and he got cornrows. Yeah. Could y'all? First of all, just think about Dave and cornrows. Yeah. That, that should make your morning right Why there. Not? I wish. Uh, by the way, I wish I had enough hair to do them now. We could probably fit some tiny braids in there. <laughs> but thank, thank you for sounding off on this, though, because I think it is important to point out when those steps are taken. And for me, I'm happy to hear that you feel you can bring your whole self to the radio. I think that's a difficult thing to do, uh, but we're getting better at it, aren't we? It's a beautiful thing. Dave, you've been in radio for 40 plus yes. years. How many times have you had a coworker call you bruh? Uh, n- n- never. Well, other yeah. than G. Have well, a good, yeah, well, have, here, yeah. Have a good day. Yeah. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And as you search for your next job or your next big investment, perhaps, you might want to go with a company run by a pro-social CEO, which takes us to the latest research from the University of Washington. Here is Weili Guh. Who is uh, you teach accounting at the? Uh, you're the Moss Adams Endowed Professor at the Foster School of Business, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Dave. I want to give credit to all the donors to make sure their names get mentioned. Yeah, and you decided to study CEOs to determine whether a pro-social CEO could change basically the environment of his company. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay, so what? how would you define a pro-social CEO? Yeah, we define pro-social CEOs as individuals who engage in pro-social activities. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, uh, what is pro-social activity? Yeah. Basically refers to off-the-job activities that primarily benefit others. Mm-hmm. So, so these are the, these are things that, that they do outside the office. Yes, exactly. This like like being parts of charitable organizations or things like that. Perfect. Exactly. Like serving on the board for Seattle Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. or serving on board for for like American Cancer Society. Mm-hmm. So this is off the job behavior, and that is primary to benefit others. So I this see. is how we define uh, prosocial behavior. And so you found a connection then between chief executive officers who are involved in charitable organizations, a connection between that and how they run their companies? Exactly, exactly. What we're interested in is that do we see some kind of match or consistency between this off-the-job behavior, this, their values, and their on-the-job decision-making? Mm-hmm. And there was a connection. How, exactly. So how, so how did you go about 
you know, adding, getting data on that, documenting it objectively. Yeah, exactly. That is definitely a challenge for this study. So we use this database called Bordex. Bordex? Bordex, yeah. Uh-huh. B-O-A-R-D-E-X. So using Bordex, we look at the CEO's extracurricular activities, basically, their mm-hmm. involvement in this kind of different organizations. And we use IRS classification to define charities. So we follow more than like 3,500 public traded company CEOs and look at their off-the-job organization involvement. And we specific track whether those organizations are they charitable or not. Mm-hmm. So this is how we gather data. So you were sure that they were involved in bona fide charitable organizations? Yeah, exactly. So did you give them like a, an involvement score of some kind? Uh, what we did here in this study is more of are they involved or not? Uh-huh. Because we look at what is a position in these charitable organizations because this needs to be meaningful, right? right. Not just a member of any anywhere. So typically, they are on the board, the mm-hmm. director of the board or their chairman of the board or chairwoman of the board. So this is what we try. We feel that this is a pretty significant devotion over their personal time. Right. So you're looking then for CEOs who had a an upper level position at a certain charity. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And then you try to connect it to the way they ran their company. So how did you then assess the the characteristics of their leadership in their companies? So what we're interested in is we look at a wide range of stakeholders. And we're very interested in CEOs because CEOs, they have very unique and important role in society because they have interactions, they have implications for lots of stakeholders. So we looked at employees, Okay, and we look at customers mm-hmm. and we look at uh, society in general. And eventually we look at firm value, basically shareholders benefit too. And did okay. you find a connection then between pr- a pro-social CEO and the value of the stock? Yes, we did. Tell it, me more about that. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that helps investors uh, choose which stocks to buy, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so there are two levels here. So first, we look at what are the direct implications for these corporate policies, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of internal stakeholders, employees are the most important internal stakeholders. There are two types. One type is that they are direct, the CEO's direct subordinates, like chief financial officer. Chief mm-hmm. Operating Officer. They directly work with the people with who are the high up in the in the front office. High up, but directly below CEO. So they have lots of interactions with CEO. So our thought is that if it's pro-social CEOs, they care more other more about other people, and they are better in building the trustworthy working relationships. In that case, all else equal, their direct subordinates are less likely to leave the company. So mm-hmm. we look at their direct subordinates turnover rate. Okay, mm-hmm. And then we also look at generally rank and file employees. What about general employee-related policies, such as pension plan or other employee benefits, whether there are any implications? So we find that the direct subordinate turnover is significantly lower for pro-social CEOs when we compare with non-pro-social CEOs. That's one. Second, we also find that the, these pro-social CEOs are significantly associated with higher or better employee-friendly policies. Oh, and we control for lots of other factors. All else equal, we see the impact of having pro-social CEO. So yeah. you found that a pro-social CEO, there's less turnover at yeah. the at the managerial level, yeah. and even rank and file employees have better pension plans or treated better. Yeah, exactly, better so, policies. So, so that is so important. basically, then you so you 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 come up, I guess, with a with a litmus test for whether a CEO really cares about the people who work for him based on their membership on these charitable organizations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
huh. their involvement in the charitable Is yours the first study to, to, to find that connection? Yeah, we're the first study to examine this specifically as pro-social CEOs. And in for my research in general, and there's an area of research looking at all these individual CEO characteristics, how they affect different corporate decision making. Mm-hmm. But in terms of pro-social tendency, our paper is a first study. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. so who's the winner? Who's the most pro-social CEO? Uh, we, because we look at our database only allows us to look at whether they have involvement or not. Mm-hmm. So we don't really, it's not like continuous variable. It's not like continuous score. We know that who is the most pro-social CEO. So in our data set, it's either they have involvement or not, right? Mm-hmm. We do have a, a we did some additional analysis looking at the number of charities they're involved with as additional analysis, but we didn't really rank specific uh, CEOs. So is there, a, well, is there a place that people can go to uh, to find out the charitable involvement of CEOs? Yeah, they, Bordex. There's a public data. Bordex is, is open to anybody then. Uh, Bordex, actually, you need to have a subscription to it. Mm-hmm. But lots of this, but Bordex, how do they gather data? They gather data based on all the publicly available information. Waylee Gu is a professor of accounting at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. And uh, thank you for sharing your research with us. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.